the first we knew of the uprising was on 2nd of April at 5 o'clock in the morning. Two of Big Bear's Indians entered our house and told us our horses had been stolen by the half-breeds, though they themselves were the thieves. Soon after, some 30 more armed and mounted came to the house and forced their way in. They took all the guns and ammunition they could find, telling us they were short and required them. They said they wished to save us from the half-breeds. They took us first to Mr. Quinn's, where they had a long talk about holding together to keep back the half-breeds when they came to get the supplies. From Quinn's, we were taken to the church where Mass was being celebrated, but they would not permit the priest to finish and ordered them to return with us to our house. We were left to ourselves for about an hour, the Indians surrounding the house. It was then about half past nine in the morning. Big Bear came in and told my husband he feared some of the young men intended shooting the whites, but that he at least would be safe. A little later, they ordered us all to go to the Indian camp. We departed, my husband and I with the others, taking only what we had on our backs because we did not expect to be gone a long time. Before we had gone far, the Indians began to shoot down the whites. Mr. Quinn was their first shot, though I did not see him killed. All the shooting was behind my husband and me, and until otherwise informed, I supposed it was firing into the air. I saw Mr. Gowanlock fall. As he dropped, Mrs. Gowanlock leaned over him, putting her face to his. As two shots had been fired at her husband, I thought she had also been hit. After Mr. Gowanlock fell, I saw some frightful object. An Indian, hideously painted, aiming at my husband. Before I could speak, he staggered away, but came back to me and said, I am shot. He fell then. I called the priest and he came towards me. Then the same Indian fired again. I thought the shot was meant for me, and I laid my head upon my husband and waited. It seemed an age, but the ball had been for my poor husband and he never spoke again. Almost immediately another Indian ran up and ordered me away. I wished to stay, but he dragged me off, pulling me along by the arms through the brush and briar and through the creek where the water reached to my waist. As I was being dragged away, I saw the two priests shot. Father Fafard fell first, and then Father Marchand. And that right there is an excerpt from the book Blood Red the Sun, written by William Bleasdale Cameron, the sole white man to survive the Frog Lake Massacre on that fateful spring morning, 1885. Perhaps one of the more brutal events during that Northwest Rebellion. Now the section that I just read to you, that's actually from a Mrs. Delaney whose husband was one of the nine white men killed in the massacre. But during the next two months, William Bleasdell Cameron, the author of this book, he was a prisoner of Big Bear's Plain Cree tribe as they fought and evaded Canadian military forces. And though William Bleasdell Cameron, he didn't see much of the frontline fighting, his account gives a pretty good picture about what was happening behind the scenes of this military conflict, this 
war for the West. Now, in recent years, our politically correct sensibilities have sort of monkeyed around a little bit with the nomenclature of what happened in 1885. But like I said before, at the time and even until recent years, this was known as the Northwest Rebellion. Nowadays, you might hear it referred to as the Métis Uprising or perhaps even the terribly euphemistic Métis Resistance. But make no mistake, this was a war for the West. A war by which any metric, whether it's the number of soldiers involved, the atrocities committed, the battlefield casualties, this is a war that you can stack up against any of the many campaigns to subjugate the Western Indian on the frontier. And with the exception of Custer's ill-fated command along the banks of the Little Bighorn about eight years previous, you would be hard-pressed to find a deadlier campaign. And so the purpose, or one of the purposes of this podcast, or the path I'd like to go down, is to place this war within its proper historical context. And that is of a concluding event, a curtain call for the last of the great Indian Wars of the West. Never again would the Plains tribes pose such a threat to white settlement and expansion on the frontier. The Northwest Campaign was truly the last gasp, the death rattle of independence for the Plains tribes and the Western horse culture. Because after 1885, that dream of independence, the dream of living a traditional life on the plains, hunting buffalo, moving with the seasons, was dead, never to be rekindled. And the question that I'm going to keep coming back to, that I'm going to ask throughout this podcast is, was it all destined to end this way? Was this last gasp of native pride, of native independence, whatever you want to call it, was it preordained to fail? Or did the Métis and their Indian allies stand a chance? Could there have been a way to preserve that culture, that way of life that had existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years? Could Lura Riel and Gabriel Dumont and Chief Big Bear and Chief Poundmaker, could they have pulled this thing off? against all the odds? Or was this the lost cause of the North? Now, one of the great things about being a history teacher or a social studies teacher, as it's called now, is that every once in a while you will get a kid asking a question that is just so unencumbered by traditional orthodoxies about the way we look at things and is so creative and it gets you thinking. And one of these questions was, well, often they are what if questions. One of these questions that I have received is, well, what if Louis Riel had won this rebellion? What would Canada look like? And it gets you thinking, how would this country be different if Riel had won? But I think really to answer this question, you've got to go back and you have to ask a further question, which is, could Riel have won this rebellion? Was it possible? And 
you know, it would be incredibly easy, especially with the benefit of 150 years of historical hindsight to say, are you kidding me? Of course the Métis couldn't have won this thing. They never stood a chance. I mean, just look at the resources, the manpower, the technology that Canada could have brought to bear on this rebellion. And that's a perfectly legitimate opinion to hold. And yet, at the time, there was mass panic and hysteria surrounding the Indian uprising. At the time, it was no guarantee thing who would win this battle, who would win this war. The memory of Custer and his 200 dead troopers stripped, scalped, and mutilated in the summer heat was still fresh in the mind. And so the question was, could the same thing have happened on the Northern Plains? And so how I'm going to approach this podcast is, well, I mean, it's a lot like those old choose-your-own-adventure books that I read as a kid, and maybe you did too. You know the ones I'm talking about, where you're reading along and your character comes to two doors. you got a left door and a right door, and you got to decide which one to go through. And so you you might pick the door on the right. And the door on the right leads you down a path, and your character dies. And so what do you do? Well, you flip back through the pages, and you go through the door on the left. And the journey continues. And so that's sort of what I'm going to do with this podcast. We're going to crack open these doors to get a picture of how things could have been different. And with a few twists and turns, we're going to see if Louis Riel and Gabriel Dumont and Chief Poundmaker and Big Bear, if things would have happened just a little bit differently, would the end result of this rebellion have been any different? If that bullet, that grazed General Middleton's scalp, if it had just been an inch the other direction and killed the General, would that have changed things? If Chief Poundmaker doesn't call back his troops, his warriors at the Battle of Cutknife Hill, would that have changed the outcome? We're going to peek into these alternative history doors and we're going to see just how this rebellion could have turned out a little bit differently. But if we're going to ask the question about could could the Métis have won this? Well, you've you got to be realistic and you've got to look at the overwhelming military strength that Canada could have brought to bear on this rebellion and compare that to the Métis and their Indian allies because that can't be ignored. And so I'm going to lay out what I think the victory conditions for the Métis would have been. And it's just as much political as it is military, if not more so. You see, at the time, Canada was a very much divided country on what course of action should be taken to deal with this rebellion. You had strong, strong support from English Canada to militarily vanquish the Métis and get some revenge on Thomas Scott, who was executed at the Red River Colony about 15 years prior. A great example of this is read some of the accounts of the militia units based out of southern Ontario who were shipped by rail to the west. Because when they pulled away from Union Station in Toronto en route to the northwest, there were by some accounts a hundred thousand people lining the streets of Toronto to cheer them on. 
Newspapers at the time called this the greatest day in the history of the city of Toronto. Think about that. A hundred thousand people on the streets. You couldn't get a hundred thousand people on the streets of Toronto today. Well, I mean, maybe you could with the Toronto Raptors victory parade, but it's a city of five million people now. To get a hundred thousand people on the streets, that's incredible. But this sense of lust for the fight, this sense of revenge on Riel and the Métis, it wasn't universal. Quebec. Quebec, as is so often the case, was the outlier. There was tremendous sympathy in Quebec for what they considered to be their brethren, their kin in the Northwest. There were ties of language and kinship and religion which linked the French-speaking Roman Catholic population in Quebec with the Métis who shared those same traits in the Northwest. Many of the Quebecois and the Métis, they would have shared common ancestry due to the fact that the Métis are descendants of French fur traders and native women. And so, as is so often the case in Canada, there was a very distinct English and French divide on how this rebellion, how this war should be prosecuted. And I think therein lies the only hope for the Métis in snatching a victory in this rebellion. So could they have prolonged the war enough? Could they have inflicted enough casualties on the initial Canadian force sent to subjugate them that the political pressure from Quebec would build, that sympathy for their cause would build and make this war politically untenable for Prime Minister John A. Macdonald? A prolonged war or a serious military setback would eat up resources and money and lives and it would make that Quebec case for cessation of hostilities that much more powerful and convincing. And so it's through that lens that I'm going to journey through the pivotal moments of this rebellion. And by the end, we'll see if Louis Riel and Gabriel Dumont could have shocked the world and pulled this thing off. But before we get into you know, those what-if questions before we get into the grand strategy and the maneuvers and the tactics of this campaign. Let's look at what kind of force Louis Riel and the Métis could bring to the field of battle. So the Métis population of Saskatchewan District, which was like a sub-district of the entire Northwest Territory, it was about 5,500 with the largest concentration in what's called the South Branch Settlements, which included the villages and towns on both sides of the South Saskatchewan River. This was the epicenter of Métis power. And this is where Riel is going to establish his so-called capital at a village called Batoche, which we're going to hear about later. Now we know that Riel is going to be outnumbered in this war. There's no getting around that. And so if he's going to stand any chance at all of success, he's got to maximize the Métis participation and he's got to drive up the numbers of able-bodied Métis to his cause. If he doesn't do that, he's dead in the water. And it doesn't look good at the beginning because he's able to enlist about 350 Métis. So there's about 350 Métis out of 5,500 that are willing to take up arms and shoulder a rifle and fight their government. Well, I mean, they didn't consider the Canadian government to be their government at the time, but that's the situation we're in. And so now you're probably thinking to yourself, what, only 350? 
That's not a lot. Well, let's break down the numbers a little bit. Because we start off with a total Métis population of 5,500. And right away we have to cut that in half. Because women aren't going to fight in this war. Sorry ladies, it's just not the way things are done. And so suddenly we're down to a male Métis population of about 2,800. So we've got 350 out of 2,800. It still doesn't look too good. But out of that 2,800, we can probably half that again to take into account the young and the old. Because Riel's not going to enlist a 10-year-old to fight, and he's not, he has no use for a, you know, a 70-year-old to fight this war. I mean, there were some older men found in the rifle pits of Batash, but by and large, what we're trying to ascertain here is the number of fighting age Métis. And that pool is about 1,400. That, so that's the pool that Riel can fish from. And he gets about 350. So in other words, Riel gets about 25% of the male fighting age Métis population to join his cause and pick up a rifle. That's not quite a failure. I mean, would Riel like to bump up that number? Yeah, of course he would. But convincing 25 or 30% of the fighting age population to pick up a gun and go to war, that's an, that's an achievement. I mean, we've had elections in this country, by-elections and city elections, where you can't get 25% of the people to go out and vote. But Riel does that by getting 25% of the people to go to war. And if there's 25% of people who are willing to go to war, then you can bet there is an awful lot more who are going to be sympathetic to his cause. Now, you might not find these people in the rifle pits, but these are going to be people who maybe they're going to scout for your army. Maybe they're going to gather supplies. Maybe they're going to spy on Middleton's column as it marches. They're going to give some intelligence to Riel. The friendly atmosphere is going to create, well, if we're going to use a sports analogy, a home court advantage. And so 350 fighters, well, the teacher in me is going to probably give Riel, it's not a failing mark, it's not an A+, plus. it's somewhere in between maybe a C plus or a B-. minus. It's a start, but it's not going to be enough, and here's why. Riel is going to have to contend with an initial Canadian army of about 3,000 soldiers coming from the east by Riel under General Middleton. And he's got another, let's say, 1,000 police and mounted militia and scouts and cowboys coming from the west under Major General Strange from Calgary. And he's got about 500 local mounted police in the vicinity already that he has to deal with. So if you add that all up, there's about 5,000 Canadian soldiers that Riel is going to have to defeat. And so if you're Louis Riel and Gabriel Dumont, you're going to have to find more men. Somehow. Because even the best generals in the world, whether it's, I don't know, Robert E. Lee or Napoleon, or Alexander, you can't fight your way out of a 10 to 1 disadvantage in manpower, unless your technology is great, which for the Métis, it's not. And lucky for Riel, there just so happens to be a pool of people who are so disaffected with the government, so starving, so desperate, that they just might join such a venture because they've got nothing left to lose. And of course, I'm talking about the native tribes of the Northwest. So 
I'm going to go back to the book Blood Red the Sun and William Bleasdale Cameron's depiction of the native tribes in the vicinity, specifically Big Bear's Plains Creek tribe. So back to the book. Clustering about the lake were the reserves of several bands of Indians. The Cree nation is divided into two branches, the Wood and the Plains Cree. The former, whose property these reserves were, differed wildly in character and mode of life from their brethren of the Plains. They were solitary hunters and trappers afoot, the mainstay of the Saskatchewan Valley fur trade. And they had lived for generations at peace with the right traders and missionaries. The Plains Cree, on the other hand, pitched their lodges in the great open territory between the north and south branch of the Saskatchewan rivers, where in companies and mounted they ran buffalo and waged incessant war against their hereditary foes, the Blackfoot. But their hands were against those of almost every neighboring tribe as well, and they made frequent raids into the lands of these enemies and were in turn raided by them. They were better orators, more crafty, more savage and daring than were their relatives of the woods. Now, the Assiniboine and the Cree, they aren't what they once were in terms of power. Certainly not by 1885. But if you're Lura Riel and Gabriel Dumont, you need these guys on board. You share language with them, you share blood ties with them, and you need those warriors to join your cause if you're going to have any hope at all of beating Middleton. I mean, these are men who, according to Cameron, they sit around in their spare time and they smoke pipes and they brag about battles and how many Blackfoot scalps they took in the good old days. And their presence on the battlefield, their presence in the ranks, well, it might be enough to start to balance the scales just a little bit. Riel needs these tribes if he's going to have any hope at all. And on the flip side, these Plains tribes also need Riel and the Métis if they're going to break out from the reserve system and take back the land that they view as theirs that has been stolen from them. Big Bear, his tribe is going to be able to bring about 250 warriors to the field. And these are warriors. These aren't, these aren't green troops like the guys being sent from Ontario and Quebec to fight this war who have never fired a gun in anger. These are warriors who know about death. They know how to fight. They've taken scalps. They've counted coups. And if we add these 250 warriors to Riel's Métis, then we suddenly come up with a number of about 600. Because what I'm doing here is I'm adding 350 Métis with 250 of Big Bear's warriors, and we come up to 600. Which... Though better, it's probably still not going to be enough to beat Middleton and Major General Strange coming in from Calgary. But there's another tribe not too far away. The chief is Poundmaker. And though he's not as militant as Big Bear, because Big Bear does have this reputation, he was the, one of the last of the chiefs to bring his tribe onto reserve, and so he attracted like a magnet all the militant warriors of the Cree to his band. So he's seen as a troublemaker, he's seen as militant. Poundmaker is seen more as sort of this wise man, this uh, this negotiator, this statesman. He's not as belligerent as Poundmaker, and yet he's going to play a pretty big part in this rebellion. And he himself can bring about 250 warriors to the field as well. 
So now what, what am I going to do? Well, I think you know. I'm going to add Poundmaker's 250 Warriors to Big Bears and the 350 made T. And all of a sudden, we've got 850 fighters. That's something. They're still going to be heavily outnumbered, but that's a sizable force, 850 men. I mean, just imagine if in today's society we had a regiment-sized body of militants in possibly like Quebec or, I don't know, secessionist Alberta. And think about the panic that would ensue. Think about the resources that would be required to put down such a force. Think about the hysteria and the panic. Well, that's 1885. So this rebellion, it sort of starts off in the same way as many of the other military campaigns against the native people of the West that were occurring south of the border at this time. And, and so here's how the pattern goes. Uh, we have Indian territory or native territory uh, through negotiation or aggression by the expansionist government. That native tribe is then forced onto a reserve. And then what happens? Well, expansion keeps on pressing up against that reserve and land gets taken away. The Indians get frustrated. They lash out militarily, provoking a great military response by the government. And at the end of the day, the natives are left with less than what they started with. The Canadian expansion westward was a little late to the game, if, if you will, by the time the Canadian government is seriously moving to place its sovereignty over the West, because the natives, they're already suffering the effects of smallpox and disease, and most importantly, the disappearance of the buffalo herds. And so they're in a weakened state by the time Canada starts expanding westward, much more weak than uh, the Great Plains tribes of America just a couple decades before. And it all comes to a boiling point in the winter and early spring of 1885. There's this mood that things are going to come to a head on, in the west. And Cameron writes about the war dances that he sees at night, the intimidation of the Indian agents, the threats and the pointed guns during food and ration negotiations. If this was an old John Wayne Western movie, we could say that the natives were getting restless at this time. And so I'm going to go back to the book Blood Red the Sun just one more time. And this is what Cameron writes about the, uh, the mood, the setting of the West in 1885. So he says, In this and the preceding chapter, I have endeavored to show Big Bear's band in a characteristic attitude of hostility to the government. How soon that opportunity was to arise, the handful of white men who had made their way into that primitive corner of the Northwest could then have had small conception. So William Bleasdale Cameron, he's writing that, well, he's basically saying, yeah, we knew something was going to happen. We knew something big was going to go down. And it's in this climate that Riel and Dumont declare a Métis government with its capital at Batoche. And throughout that winter, Riel is sending emissaries to chiefs in the area, like Chief Big Bear and Chief Poundmaker, trying to get them on board. And Cameron tells us that the, the natives were, in fact, on board with the Métis, and they were just waiting for that perfect moment to strike. And as you heard at the beginning of the podcast, that perfect moment to strike came at a place called Frog Lake. It's the Frog Lake Massacre. And... The impetus behind that, or the genesis, the, the spark behind that is uh, the first battle of this war at a place called Duck Lake, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. 
But back to the, the preparations that are being made, the this air of hostility, well, none of it is lost on the government back in Ottawa. And they begin making preparations before the first shots of this war are even fired. And the first order of business is Sir John A. Macdonald. He's going to appoint General Middleton as the man in charge of putting down this rebellion that hasn't even started yet. And Middleton seems like a pretty good fit for the job because he's a professional soldier. He was in New Zealand fighting the Maori tribe. He was in the Indian Mutiny where there was tens of thousands of casualties. It was a huge war. He was recommended for the Victoria Cross, the highest military honor in the entire British Empire. This is a man who knows how to put down a rebellion. Now by 1885, he's not young anymore. He's starting to show his age. He's graying, he's portly. Events will show him to be an overly cautious commander, which is going to play into Riel and Dumont's hands. Yet given his track record, he's probably, well, on the surface, he seems like a pretty good fit for the job. Now the Métis, like we said before, if they're going to win this rebellion, they've got to strike hard, they've got to strike fast, and they've got to inflict at least one serious military defeat on Canada, because if they don't do that at the outset they're going to lose a war of attrition because they're outnumbered. And that's part of their victory conditions. It's one big military defeat on the Canadian government. And they get a chance to do that at a place called Duck Lake in late March 1885. And this battle, it is the, it's the quintessential Canadian battle. I mean, it's fought with Mounties arriving on sleds through the deep snow. It's also a victory for Riel and Dumont. The Métis, they draw first blood in this war, at this first engagement at Duck Lake. Now, Duck Lake, it was a small settlement between Batoche, the Métis capital, and Fort Carlton, which is sort of a hub for the Northwest Mounted Police at this time. And Duck Lake, it's an important place because it's uh, it's got some stores, some trading stores, outposts with weapons and ammunition and supplies. Things that Riel is going to need in this war. And so the mounted police, they realize too that these stores are important. And so they set out from Fort Carlton with about 100 men and a 7-pound gun under the command of a guy named Leif Crozier, who's a, a police superintendent. Now, unfortunately for Crozier, Riel and Dumont are going to get to Duck Lake first. And the mounted police, arriving on their sleds, they walk into a trap, or, or should I say they, they slide into a trap, a perfect ambush. Because before getting to Duck Lake, they reach a snowy plateau with a few cabins surrounded by trees. And scouts come back to Crozier, bringing news that the Métis are waiting for them. And Crozier, he takes a defensive position, he deploys his sleds parallel to the road. It's at this time that two Métis ride out under a white flag, and Crozier, after a period of time, he realizes that the purpose of this parley is it's not genuine, it's a ruse. The Métis have been using these two emissaries as a distraction so that they can maneuver into the surrounding trees. There's some deception at work. And once the Métis are placed perfectly, the firing starts. And Crozier, he's in a bad situation right away. He's got enemies to the front in the cabins. He's got enemies working around the flanks in the trees hiding. And he's out in the open hiding behind his sleds. 
not only that, but the Métis have managed to gain numerical superiority in this localized setting. Because Gabriel Dumont, the military commander of the Métis, he's perceived Crozier's move before it even happened. And so despite being massively outnumbered in the grand scheme of things, Dumont's able to concentrate his forces where it matters. And he's got 250 Métis, about two-thirds of the entire Métis army, against Crozier's 100. And it all ends as you might suspect. It's an ambush. The classic tactic of the Indian Wars. And after a short fight of about 30 minutes, Crozier, he's got 12 dead. He's got 12 wounded, seriously injured. And the Métis have only lost five guys. Now, one of those guys is Gabriel Dumont's brother. But the... The situation is that Crozier is in, well, it's untenable. He's lost 25% of his men in just 30 minutes, and he sounds the retreat. And so this is it. As the police slides lumber away, encumbered with the dead and the wounded, Dumont, he turns to Riel, and he asks for the order to pursue the retreating foe. And as students of history know, a retreating army is a vulnerable army. And retreats often turn into routes, and routes turn into massacres. It's going to be a buffalo hunt, but with men. All that Dumont needs is a nod of the head from Louis Riel, and the Métis can ride the slow-moving police down, slaughtering them all, fulfilling that first victory condition that the Métis need, which is delivering a serious military defeat on the government forces. And so Dumont, he's looking to Riel, waiting for that nod of the head. And it never happens. As the Métis warriors are mounting up ready to pursue, Riel inexplicably calls them back. Now maybe Riel was being magnanimous in the, the victory that they had already achieved. Maybe Riel didn't want to risk turning this modest victory into a defeat by losing more men, which he's going to have a hard time replacing. Perhaps he feared provoking a greater government response if this victory turned into a massacre. Or maybe, now we don't know this, but maybe he had a divine vision from God, as he often did, with a message of mercy. We'll never know, and the opportunity passes by. Crozier makes good on his retreat to Fort Carlton. The fort is burned down, and the police, they look their wounds at a place called Battleford, which is soon going to be besieged by Chief Poundmaker's tribe. But in my book, in my choose-your-own-adventure book, there is an alternative chapter to this battle. Because rather than choosing the door on the right that leads to the police escaping, Gabriel Dumont, he looks to Riel, and this time Riel says, Yes, ride them down. And so in my book, we open the door on the left, and it takes us to a very different place. This time, the police and Crozier, they're lumbering away on their sleds, encumbered by deep snow and the dead and the wounded, when, from the surroundings, this primal... War cry begins to echo throughout the winter landscape and the trees. And it's a sound not heard for many years, and it sends a chill down the spine. Dumas mounted fighters and their Indian allies, 
They're made for this type of mobile warfare, and they're going to move quickly. They're going to cut off the slow-moving sleds, and I think they disable the lead sled, causing a blockage on the path. And then I think one by one, the sleds strung out on the trail are picked apart, and discipline is lost. And the survivors at this point, they make a desperate run for survival to Fort Carlton, and the road to that fort is stained in blood when the shooting fades. And in our book, none of the police survive. It's a massacre. Some men try to surrender, but they are clubbed to death and the ancient rites of battle are unleashed on the scalped men whose corpses are left to freeze in the wintry conditions. Just like the bodies of the Frog Lake Massacre, men will, will months later come back to this spot and see the mutilated bodies left exposed and unburied. And at the end of the day, it's the little bighorn of the north. And it sends a shockwave through the country. Crozier and his command annihilated. Now, back to the real historical timeline. The modest Métis victory at Duck Lake that we read about in the history books, that is enough to bring Big Bear and Poundmaker's tribes into this war. It's enough to instigate the Frog Lake Massacre, which I read about at the beginning of this podcast. It's the sign that William Bleasdale Cameron tells us that the Indians were waiting for. It unleashes the forces of war. But in my book, the alternative history book, the utter destruction of Crozier brings not just Poundmaker and not just Big Bear, but it brings other hitherto neutral tribes into the war. Other Cree and Assiniboine and Dakota tribes now throw their lot in with the, with the Métis and with Riel, with the winners. I think even further west to Chief Crowfoot and the powerful Blackfoot Confederacy in southern Alberta. And I think that even Chief Crowfoot starts posturing for more land, more rations, and a better deal. And although he is seen as a peaceful chief, I think that events are going to give him leverage, which he's going to use to get a better deal. Because his reserves are only a day or two ride away from Calgary. Now it's complicated because the Blackfoot are the traditional enemies of the Cree. And they were at war for hundreds of years. And even to this day, there is no love lost between the Cree and the Blackfoot. I mean, to this day, there are Cree people who won't go to a Blackfoot reserve because they, because bad things will happen. And this blood, blood certainly exists back in 1885. But it's somewhat complicated as well because Chief Crowfoot, he is Poundmaker's adopted father. But I think regardless in such a situation, I think that Major General Strange, he's never going to leave Calgary with his 1,000 men. He can't leave the town defenseless, not with the Blackfoot posturing and maneuvering. I think that Strange, he stays put in the face of this leveraging from the Blackfoot. And I think that effectively takes his ad hoc force of militia and cowboys out of the war. 
And so all of a sudden, the Duck Lake Massacre, it's going to make Riel and Dumas' job a lot easier because now that they only have to concentrate on Middleton and his 3,000 soldiers coming by rail from the east. They don't have to worry about the two-front war on the west. Now, in the meantime, in our Choose Your Own Adventure book, the Frog Lake Massacre, it's still going to happen, as it really did. And Poundmaker, he's still going to move on Battleford, and the settlers and the police, they're going to be besieged for quite some time in that town, as really happened. And I think Big Bear, he's still going to move on Fort Pitt, as really happened. The difference is that his stature is going to be increased for the massacre at Frog Lake. And other tribes are going to join him. And the Woods Cree, who were historically a restraining force on the more militant Plains Cree, well, they're going to lose sway. And so Big Bear, he's going to arrive at Fort Pitt with a bolstered force and a much more militant force. And we know of his plans from William Bleasdale Cameron, who was at this time his prisoner. Uh, because Cameron, he sits in on the war councils, uh, as plans are being devised for the attack on Fort Pitt. And this is what Cameron writes about as he's a prisoner of Big Bear's tribe, sitting in on these war councils. So back to the book. Fitzpatrick, an American ex-soldier, Simpson and myself, so these are, are three, uh, three guys who are prisoners of Big Bear, we in turn begged the warriors to be guided by their chief, assuring them that they would never regret sparing lives of the comparatively defenseless people at Pitt, among them many women and children. It was customary, we said, for a superior force to allow a small body of the enemy to surrender and march off unharmed rather than to attack them. So Cameron he's been asked by this war council what he thinks of their plans to attack Fort Pitt, which is strange because he's their prisoner at this time, but he, he's being sought for advice nevertheless. And that's what he says. Going back to the book, several Indians followed and supported our plan. One man thanked us for the suggestion. It would be much simpler to lure the police out of the fort by fair promises and then surround and kill them in the open than to attack them under cover of the buildings. Wandering spirits said that they had not spared our lives thus far to have us dictate to them what they should do in times of war. Emesis said Riel's orders were to kill the police. As the Plains Crees, they meant to fight. They had men enough to capture and burn the fort and kill everyone in it. If the police went, they would take with them their guns and the ammunition, things that the Indians most needed. In this section, we can see evidence of the Plains Cree and the Métis working together because, you know, they, they have a plan. Riel's told them to kill all the police, and so that's what they're going to do. Back to the book. The council broke up and we went back to our tents, saddened and discouraged. Our efforts had come to nothing, apparently. There was slight chance the suggestions we had made would serve any purpose except to further a plot to wipe out the garrison at Fort Pitt by treachery instead of an open attack. So Cameron, he's feeling pretty bad about himself right now because he's saying to the native warriors, hey, if you guys attack, you're going to lose a lot of men. And not to mention, why don't you just let these people go? They're small in number. There's no honor in this victory. And the native war council, they, they listen to what he has to say. And they're like, you're right. 
it, it is too risky to attack the fort. Even though we can probably win, we're going to lose a lot of warriors. So let's do what you said. Let's invite them out of the fort to retreat. Let them think they're going to get away and then attack. Now here's what Cameron writes as Big Bear's warriors ride off to battle. The warriors, mounted, assembled at the lower end of the camp. They, as well as their ponies, were decked in all their finery. With their paint and feathers, their polished weapons, gaudy blankets, beaded leggings, and moccasins, they made a picturesque panorama against the setting of green grass and delicate aspens. The distant hills, the glint of blue waters in the lake below, and immediately behind, the white canvas lodges with their smoke-brown tops and crossed poles. They came riding slowly around the camp, their war chant rising weirdly on the fresh spring air, their ponies prancing under their flashing trappings. They reached the far end again, broke into a gallop and with wild cries and a crash from their guns, clattered away in the direction of Fort Pitt. In the real historical timeline, the police and the settlers taking shelter in Fort Pitt, they wake up one morning and they see Big Bear's forces on the surrounding hills. And Big Bear, he writes a letter to the fort. Going back to the book, this is what, what Big Bear in his letter says. It's addressed to Sergeant Martin, Northwest Mounted Police. My dear friend, since I first met you long ago, we have always been good friends. That is the reason why I want to speak kindly to you. Please get off from Fort Pitt as soon as you can. Tell your captain that I remember him well, for since the Canadian government has had me starve in this country, he sometimes gave me food. I do not forget, the last time I visited Fort Pitt, he gave me a good blanket. That is the reason that I want you all out without any bloodshed. Try and get away before this afternoon, as the young men are wild and hard to keep in hand. Signed, Big Bear, and there's a postscript here. P.S. You asked me to keep the men in camp last night, and I did, so I want you to get off today. Now this is exactly what Cameron was talking about. This letter is a stratagem meant to lure the soldiers or the police out of the fort where they can be attacked and ambushed with relatively little loss of life to Big Bear's forces. This letter is definitely an example of psychological warfare. Either surrender now or I won't be able to control the young warriors. That's the message. That's the tactic and the ploy that Big Bear is using, and it's used over and over again in North American frontier warfare. Going all the way back to, well, I think of the Battle of Fort Oswego in the Seven Years' War, uh, Isaac Brock used this same tactic to conquer Detroit in the War of 1812. Captain Dickens, he eventually decides to retreat. He gets away with most of the civilians, though some are taken prisoner. They get into a boat, and they... Leaf or Pit, which is then occupied by Big Bear. We know that's what happened historically. And many in Big Bear's camp, they wanted to attack that fort outright. In my book, they do. 
encouraged by the additional warriors and the heightened militancy in camp. Big Bear's warriors, led by Wandering Spirit, they attacked the fort, or maybe they lured the police outside and then attacked the small detachment. In either event, you can't say that it's not possible after what happened at Frog Lake. We know that these men were capable of massacre. And I think with Crozier annihilated, this scenario at Fort Pitt is highly likely. And so, what does this attack on Fort Pitt do? Well, first of all, it wipes out a couple dozen police officers from the board. It brings additional supplies to the Métis. But the massacre at Fort Pitt, in my book, brings fears that the exact same thing is going to happen, but on a much larger scale, at Battleford which is besieged by Poundmaker, who we can now reasonably expect has also received reinforcements from previously neutral tribes. So you can see the domino starting to fall here. Each Métis native victory in my book is going to strengthen the hand of the Métis and the natives. And the fall of Fort Pitt and the siege of Battleford is going to force Middleton to divide his force to an even greater extent than what he does in the historical timeline. Because keep in mind, there's about 500 settlers or civilians hiding in Battleford. You'll see in the textbooks that Middleton disembarks at Capel, Saskatchewan, with about 3,000 men. But he sends about 1,000 soldiers with Colonel Otter further west to Swift Current to relieve Battleford in an overland march. In our book, though, with the threat of a Massacre looming large at Battleford. And those 500 women and children hiding in that town. Middleton, I think, is going to bolster Colonel Otter's force to 1,500, commensurate with Poundmaker's increased tribe. So this split is going to leave Middleton with about 1,500 soldiers to deal with Riel and the Métis at Batoche. And in April, with the bite of winter and snow still in full force on the prairie, Middleton disembarks at Capel and begins making plans to march north, following the course of the South Saskatchewan River. And, just as in the real historical timeline, Middleton is going to advance on both sides of the river. Because he doesn't know which side he's going to encounter resistance on. Now he's got scows, which are flat-bottom boats to ferry men across the river if he needs to, to support either wing of his army. But it's nevertheless a further separation of his force that cracks open the door for a Métis victory just a little wider. Yet Middleton has to do this because he doesn't know where the main Métis troops are. He's in enemy territory after all. And it's through this enemy territory that Middleton is going to have to march his two columns towards Batash, and the ground becomes more hazardous as these soldiers march north. Almost imperceptibly, the ground goes from flat open prairie to gentle rolls and ravines and wooded gullies, perfect places for an ambush. Now, with every military force throughout history, there are always going to be at least a couple different ways that an army can sting you and inflict pain. So before we get into the, the showdown between Middleton and Riel and Dumont, let's take a moment to look at the punches that each side is going to be able to throw at each other. Here's where Middleton has an advantage over the Métis. In our 
choose your own adventure book, he's bringing 1,500 soldiers with him, the bulk of which is going to be line infantry. These are militia units from Winnipeg and the eastern provinces. And they're going to be green and raw and untested, but their weapon standardization is very high. They've been trained and drilled to maneuver as a unit. And they've got plenty of ammunition. Middleton's soldiers are never going to have to worry about running out of bullets. Unlike the Métis, and they are fully supplied. Now this militia infantry, that's the bread and butter of Middleton's army. But in addition to this, he's got mounted scouts and police. He's got artillery. And in our book, he's got this new contraption of the modern age called the Gatling gun, which is essentially a hand-cranked proto-machine gun. In the historical timeline, Colonel Otter has this gun, but in our story, Milton chooses to keep it. Now, if you're the caddy for Gabriel Dumont or the futuristic military attaché, you're going to advise Dumont that he's going to feel a lot more comfortable knowing the whereabouts and the capabilities of the artillery and this new thing called the Gatling gun. Because these are weapons that the Métis are going to be largely unfamiliar with, and they can kill you from a long range. So Milton, he's got a few different ways that he can hit the Métis with. By contrast, the Métis and their native allies... They are essentially all mounted infantry, which for the landscape isn't quite a bad thing. Because if you had to pick just one type of soldier to fight on the prairies at this time, you would probably pick mounted infantry. Now this isn't to be confused with traditional cavalry, because mounted infantry are, as the name suggests, foot soldiers who ride to battle on horses and then dismount to fight. But the mounted element of these warriors gives them a mobility advantage over Middleton's foot soldiers. They can deploy faster and more effectively than the Canadians. And they're going to arrive at the battlefield less fatigued than the foot soldiers. As with all irregular native forces, these warriors, these men are going to rely on their own individual soldiering skills like personal bravery and finding cover and marksmanship. The Métis are, as one Canadian officer in Colonel Otter's command said after the Battle of Cutknife Hill, quote, the bow ideal of what a skirmisher should be. And I think that's how Dumont's going to use his men. Because overall unit cohesion is going to be lacking with the Métis. Although in fairness, there is some cohesion in the Métis force derived from the rules of the buffalo hunt where every man has his place and there's no stragglers allowed and the word of the hunt leader is to be followed. And guess who the leader of the South Branch Métis buffalo hunt is? It's Gabriel Dumont. And so what the Métis and native allies are going to do in this war, they're going to use their mobility to get to a location first, dig in with rifle pits, concealed in the timber, and then hope that the Canadians will advance against those defensive works, which is essentially the battle plans at Fish Creek and Cutknife Hill and Batoche. And I think it's important to note that the Métis actually forced the Canadians to retreat in two of those three battles, so it's a plan that works. Now there is one more way that Dumont can sting Middleton beyond skirmishing and rifle pits. And that is to use his mounted infantry as cavalry. In other words, rather than dismounting, 
the warriors can ride into the frame. It's the enemy's line infantry or perhaps the artillery or maybe they're going to make a wide flanking maneuver into the baggage trains, the rear echelons. And in fact, there's some evidence that indeed Dumont will consider using his fighters in this way. Before the fighting at Fish Creek, Dumont had a squadron of cavalry waiting in a wooded area, flanking the coulee and the ridge, and it was his intention to strike with this mobile force, attacking the rear and the flanks once the Canadians had committed themselves to a frontal assault on the Métis rifle pits that were dug in on the hill. And as Dumont said at the time, his intention is to seal the escape route, just like you would in a buffalo hunt. And you can only imagine what might have been if he wasn't spotted by some of Middleton's scouts before the battle started. But if you're the caddy or the future military attaché to General Middleton in this campaign, you're going to tell him that he best keeps some scouts out on the wings just to make sure Dumont doesn't try this wide flanking movement again. But in any event, these are the ways that both sides can inflict pain on each other. And in my book, it starts off a little faster than what we read about in the textbooks. In the true historical timeline, Middleton, he takes his two columns and he marches up both banks of the South Saskatchewan and he meets the enemy for the first time about 40 kilometers outside of Batoche. In my movie or my book, Dumont follows the same plan, but he gets a little more aggressive. There's more confidence on account of the complete victory at Duck Lake and also word of Big Bear's success at Fort Pitt. And with these two victories in his pocket, Dumont might have some additional troops that have sided with him. And if you're there to give advice to Dumont, you might suggest that he take advantage of Middleton's characteristic lethargy and caution and try to hamper his advance a little bit with some hit-and-run raids. And I think Dumont is going to listen to you, and he's going to use some of these additional reinforcements to start taking pot shots at Middleton's column soon after it leaves, the railhead at Capel. And as the terrain gets a little more rugged, he's going to use skirmishers to set up traps along the way. Nothing serious, but a few volleys here and there, a few snipers perched in the surrounding timber and hills, and you're going to make Middleton's trek north a living hell, the further he gets from his supplies. In the real historical timeline, Middleton takes about two weeks to reach Fish Creek from Capel. But in our book, as the skirmishing continues and intensifies in, in accordance with the deteriorating terrain, Middleton's march is going to take at least two weeks longer, maybe more. And he's going to be stung and cut up along the way. And if you're Middleton, this skirmishing is like, it's sort of like a hive of bees. It's not something that's going to kill you, but it's going to be an annoyance. An annoyance that you can't get rid of because whenever you send scouts and mounted police to deal with these snipers, they vanish into the land, which they know and you don't. And maybe along the way your men come across some of your own scouts that have been killed and scalped, and it sends a jolt of fear through the ranks. Some Métis psychological warfare going on. And so, if you're Middleton, your march is going to slow down there's extra sentry duty at nights. You're losing a few soldiers here and there every day, and the morale of your force starts to fall. And you reach Fish Creek delayed, worn out, fatigued, 
and not at full fighting capacity. In our book, the exact same thing is happening concurrently a little further west to Colonel Otter's command at the hands of Chief Poundmaker's warriors. And because Middleton's march is harassed and delayed by weeks, by the time Middleton reaches Fish Creek, Colonel Otter's signature battle in this war at a place called Cutknife Hill, it's already occurred. And if you're Middleton, you're getting reports that, just as in the real historical timeline, Otter hasn't fared well in this engagement. In our book, the reports that General Middleton receives are even worse than what happened in the historical timeline. Something unthinkable has happened. Despite orders to stay in Balliford, Otter's impulsiveness, and perhaps if you're Middleton, you're saying Otter's ego-driven rashness has led him to advance against Poundmaker's tribe, and it has ended in near disaster. While on the march, Otter scouts report that the estimated number of 250 hostiles is grossly underestimated. Because in the distance they've seen teepees and paddocks of horses in such numbers to suggest that the Indian encampment is much larger than anticipated. As Otter gets closer, there's even rumors that Big Bear has moved down from Fort Pitt and has actually linked up with Poundmaker. Rather than facing an estimated Indian force of 250, men in Otter's command claim that there are at least double that number entrenched on the hill. But Otter attacks anyways. And just like in the real Battle of Cutknife Hill, Otter is repulsed when he attacks the Cree defenses. But unlike the historically accurate timeline, in our book, Otter suffers greater casualties. And when the retreat is signaled, Poundmaker doesn't call back his warriors because the rumors really are true. Big Bear has linked his tribe with Poundmaker. And like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse on the Little Bighorn, this combined tribe is too much. The initial assault on the native rifle pits, it leads to heavy casualties, and during the retreat, native warriors swarm the column. Some units get cut off entirely and are butchered. Colonel Otter, his bravery never in doubt, he goes down from enemy fire. And just like the real historical timeline, the survivors retreat to Battleford with their depleted ranks. And it's a heavy defeat. But despite that, I think this war is going to be decided with Middleton and Dumont at Fish Creek. In our book, the Battle of Batash is never going to happen because the climactic moment of this war happens in late April or in our book in early May at a place called Fish Creek or Turan's Coulee, depending on what side of the war you're on. In the historical timeline, General Middleton, he arrives on the battlefield, which has been carefully selected by Gabriel Dumont. And he's going to get there with about 900 men, and he's got another 1,000 on the opposite side of the river. And he finds the Métis and the native allies, about 250 of them, beyond Fish Creek, which is a tributary of the Saskatchewan River, and they're going to be entrenched in rifle pits on the opposite ridge or coulee. In our book... The general lay of the land is going to be the same, except that the numbers have changed. Remember, Middleton has peeled men away from his command to reinforce Otter further west. And raids have forced him to garrison soldiers along the path of march to 
guard supply stations and act as bodyguards for the Teamsters who have to supply his men. And also, there had been casualties due to the incessant sniping and skirmishing. And so Middleton is going to arrive at this field of battle, not with 900 men, but perhaps with six or maybe 700 on his side of the river. And whereas Middleton is weaker, Riel and Dumont are stronger than their initial number of 250. To start with, would it be all that surprising if Dumont by this time has attracted, well, I don't know, let's be conservative and say an additional 100 Métis fighters to his cause? Plus the 50 Métis fighters who get redeployed at the outset of the battle because of a rumored enemy flying column moving towards Batash, well, they're going to stay put. And maybe the generally positive course of the war has brought another 50 native warriors to his ranks. And so instead of 250, maybe now he's got around 500 fighters at Fish Creek. So here we are on the field of battle. This is the showdown in our book that we've been waiting for. Riel and Dumont have their 500 warriors and Métis entrenched in the rifle pits along the top of the coulee that rises above Fish Creek. And in the distance they can see Middleton's column approaching about 700 men. And if you're Dumont, you're hoping, well, first you're hoping that the emissaries that you sent to Chief Poundmaker and Chief Big Bear have found those two chiefs. They've asked for reinforcements, and you're hoping that Poundmaker and Chief Big Bear have received that message well. And secondly, you're hoping that militant orders a charge directly up the coulee. That's what you want. You want him to come in at you and commit to a frontal assault because given the terrain, your men will be able to pick them off as they make easy targets in the open. But Milton, he isn't reckless. He's not your George Armstrong Custer type. Milton is a cautious man, a methodical man, and so here's how I think he's going to approach the field. When scouts report to Milton that there is some indeterminate enemy force to his front, Milton, I think he's going to send out a couple companies of skirmishers to feel out the enemy position. And these men, they're going to be some of his best. They're the ones who are going to be good marksmen. They're going to have excellent soldiering sense. They're going to move between cover, keeping their heads down while trying to pinpoint where exactly these enemy rifle pits are. And more importantly, how many hostiles are up on the coulee. And it's going to become clear pretty quickly that it's a sizable force that they're up against. They can't see much. The Métis are dug in. They're camouflaged. And so maybe it's just the flash of movement or the puff of smoke from a rifle that they can aim at. But the incoming fire is heavy. And it's telling them right away that it's a big force. And some of those skirmishers, they're going to go down right away. Mostly headshots because that's the only part of their body that they're making visible to the enemy as they peek above the cover that they found. And while this skirmishing is happening, if you're with Middleton, you're going to see the old soldier look 10 years younger than he really is. Like he's a man who's made for this moment. And he's going to deploy the bulk of his command to the front of Fish Creek, but out of rifle range, because he's got something to hit the Métis with that they can't respond to. And that is the artillery and the Gatling gun. And these heavy weapons, they're unleashed on the coulee. The gunners working frantically to find the range and destroy the enemy rifle pits. 
and smoke begins to cover the battlefield, the fog of war as it's called. But though the sounds of the cannon, the crashing of the guns, it's intense and beyond anything ever heard in this part of the world, it's impossible to tell how much damage these heavy guns are actually doing. Because those rifle pits, they're deep and they're well placed. And if we're going to believe accounts from the Battle of Fish Creek or even the Battle of Cutknife Hill, then we have to accept that the artillery is not going to do a lot of damage. Though you can expect that it does have certainly a dampening effect on the enemy's morale. And so now Middleton, he needs to try something else because he's felt out the enemy with his skirmishers. He's unleashed an artillery barrage, but the hostiles, they're still on that hill. Just like in the real historical timeline, once Middleton realizes the determination of the enemy, he starts ferrying soldiers across from the opposite bank of the South Saskatchewan River. And he's going to first call upon the Royal Grenadiers from Toronto. But it's a somewhat tedious task because it takes about an hour just to move one company across the river. But as they come, he feeds them into the line, mostly the closest left flank. And all the while, the casualties, they're starting to mount. This is a hot battle. The enemy has the high ground. They're dug in. And so, flushed with the additional manpower from across the river, Middleton, he's going to order the bulk of his army to move up to the skirmish line and begin a general push towards the coulee. And bullets are flying everywhere at this point. Men are going down, left, right, and center. There are screams of agony with men clutching ghastly wounds. And for the bulk of the day, it's this low to medium intensity fighting. Like two boxers dancing in the ring. They're landing jabs, they're landing the odd hook, but mostly focused on their footwork, trying to gain some ground here and there to get a better sight of the enemy in this broken ground. Milton, he's going to try to use his increased numbers from across the river to start pushing around the flank, but everywhere he goes, the Métis can see him from atop the coulee, and they have the interior lines and the mobility of their horses to deploy to meet Middleton's stretching maneuvers. And these flanking attempts, they're going to be pinned down. But finally, though, as the battle rages throughout the day, by the time late afternoon rolls around, after most of his wing from the western bank of the South Saskatchewan River is across and have been ferried into the, the lines by these scows that he's taking with him, except for two companies on the far bank that he's left to guard the baggage, Milton, he's going to get the sense that the enemy is starting to tire. He has that intangible soldier's sense that now might be the time for something. Because the Métis, they aren't disciplined. They're not used to this kind of prolonged brawl. And the firing is slowing down, maybe due to a lack of ammunition, maybe fatigue on the enemy's part. And if you're the military attaché to Middleton from the future, you might re remind the old general that the Métis probably are lacking in bullets at this point, as was historically the case. And maybe this is a good time to try to muscle your way up the coulee. Use the cold steel and bayonet to drive off the hostiles. Not even the professional armies in Europe can stand the sight of those long triangular blades coming for you. And there's something about the British style of infantry charge which is inexorable in battle. Like it can't be stopped once it gets started. And so that's what Middleton does. The soldiers in his command, they gird for the order and then begin rushing the enemy rifle pits when it's given. And at first it's a bloodbath. 
as the front ranks are decimated by the opening volleys of the Métis. But the waves, they just keep coming. These are soldiers trained in the British mold after all, and the first lines of the enemy works, they come into sight, and as they do, there are now Métis fighters being flushed up from the rifle pits like quail in the tall prairie grass. And for the first time all day, Canadian soldiers now have a chance to not just shoot at shadows and glimpses of movement, but now it's easy targets. And just as some real momentum is starting to pick up, as the Métis begin to crack from the pressure and the discipline of this European martial art, Middleton goes down. The bullet that historically grazed his scalp, this time it zips him right in the face. And it's a horrible, bloody mess of a wound. And men who see the wounded general and his mangled face, they quietly hope that he dies soon because it's so hideous that he won't want to live like this. And as students of history know, the death of the king, or in this case the death of the general, often has negative ramifications. Think Battle of Hastings with King Harold. And in our battle, when Middleton goes down late in the afternoon, it halts the advance of these green Canadian troops. The advance stumbles, it grinds to a halt, and now it's two sides firing at each other at close range, the death toll mounting with every passing minute, and above it all, hardly audible at first, comes a new sound through the smoke and fog of war, and in the dimming light. As bad as the groans of the dead and the wounded are, this sound is somehow more terrifying. And if you can hear it above the din of battle on the coulee, there are rifles being fired in the distance across the river. That shouldn't be happening. It's sporadic at first, and then it's becoming heavier and frantic. But the sound that is so terrifying, it doesn't come from gunpowder or rifles. It comes from men. And if you're there tending to the wounded Middleton, you hear what sounds like a thousand voices crying out in pain and joy from the far side of the river. And you remember those two companies that were left there to guard the baggage train on the western bank. The two companies where there was no time to bring them across. And as the ferocity of the unseen battle and the war cries on the western banks reaches a fever pitch, it becomes clear what's happening. Riel's emissaries, his couriers, they did make it. Big Bear and Poundmaker have arrived from Battleford. And they've done what the Canadian authorities fear most, which is combine and unify their forces. The last scow returns overloaded with crazed men who say the two forgotten companies are able to fight for not much longer and they're about to be overrun and the cry of Indians travels down the lines. The Métis in the rifle pits above, they've seen the same thing and their fire is suddenly renewed with purpose. Almost instinctually, the men start to bury their faces in the ground and the officers begin pulling their forces back to the starting lines. Panic begins to set in, and the only thing that saves Middleton's army is the cannon and the Gatling gun that turns the Métis counterpunch into meat, allowing the Canadians to retreat and consolidate on the closest high ground they can find. And all the while, that battle on the western bank is feverish in its pitch, and then as the sun sets, the last 
of the distant rifles are heard. And there is cheering above and the enemy held coolly because they know what's happened. All night long the scalp dance is heard by terrified and defeated Canadian soldiers and the natives across the river, they're going crazy in victory. A single soldier, soaking wet and near hypothermic, approaches the sentries in the darkness and tells of Big Bear and Poundmaker's warriors coming out of nowhere and completely overrunning the men on that western shore. Retreat is now a foregone conclusion, and in the morning, as the sun rises, that blood-red sun, as Cameron calls it, what's left of the column begins to crawl south. To make greater time, the guns are left behind, the Gatling gun is left behind, and the dead are unburied. Scouts are sent forth to warn of the disaster along the banks of the South Saskatchewan, and as the remains of Middleton's once inexorable force limp away, they are harried and harassed every day by Dumont's mounted infantry, and the force that arrives back in Capel is a mere shadow of what it once was. And if you're Sir John A. Macdonald sitting in his Prime Minister's office back in Ottawa, reading news and telegrams about the disaster in the Northwest, this little bighorn of the Northwest, you might be pouring yourself a rather tall glass of gin, because as he famously said, it looks a lot like water, and you might need a tall drink while thinking on your next move. Do you try to salvage this campaign by raising an even greater force? which might risk your electoral coalition with Quebec? Or do you send negotiators to the Northwest instead and give in to Native and Métis demands for a massive and continuous province-sized reserve in that territory? It's the door on the right and the door on the left that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And you have to choose. This is your book now, and it's your adventure, so... My friends, choose wisely. I'm your host, Russell Hillier, and you've been listening to One Soldier Podcast Episode 4, dedicated to the men who fought and died on both sides of the last of the great Indian wars in Canada's West. Out. Out.